And on RN, this is David Rutledge saying hello and welcome to this week's edition of Encounter. This year marks the 550th anniversary of the death of a German genius who went by the name of Nicholas of Cusa. He died five and a half centuries ago, but still a figure of particular significance for contemporary life. He was the first major European thinker to articulate the idea that a governor takes his authority from the consent of the people he's governing, and he inspired a great deal of current important philosophical work. Well, today we're looking at the promise of his ideas in the context of theology and modernity, and the program is produced by Margaret Coffey. Right in the middle of the 15th century, a group of Benedictine monks in southern Germany received a letter from their cardinal friend in what is now an Italian town a couple of hundred kilometres further south. He was going to lead them, through experiment, to mystical theology, to a foretaste of eternal happiness. And to begin this experiment, he was going to send them a picture. If I strive to convey you by human means unto divine things, then I must do this through a likeness. There were excellent paintings around, he said, that gave the impression of an all-seeing eye. There was one in the Forum at Nuremberg, one in the castle of the town where he lived, another in the city of Brussels by the great Roger, Van der Weyden probably. He joked he was going to send the monks such a picture, one that he was able to acquire. It contains the figure of an omnivoyant, and I call it the icon of God. The monks were to hang it up, he instructed, say on the north wall. You brothers, stand around it and observe it. Regardless of the place from which each of you looks at it, each will have the impression that he alone is being looked at by it. Next, let the brother who is in the east situate himself in the west, and he will experience the icon's gaze as fixed on him in the west, just as it previously was in the east. But since he knows that the icon is stationary and unchanged, he will marvel at the changing of the unchangeable gaze. The impression is so strong that the one who is being looked upon cannot even imagine that the icon is concerned for another. We must presuppose, the Cardinal added, that whatever is apparent with regard to the icon of God's sight is truer with regard to God's true sight. The icon's gaze looks at you in equal measure in every region and does not desert you no matter where you go. Therefore, a speculative consideration will be occasioned in you, and you will be aroused and will say, O Lord, by a certain sense experience, I now behold in this image of you your providence. For if you do not desert me, who am the least of all men, then you will never desert anyone. You are present to each and everything, just as being, without which things cannot exist, is present to each and everything, for you are the absolute being of all things. This letter, and it gradually becomes an extended prayer to the incomprehensible God, was written to the monks of Tegensee, south of Munich, 
by cardinal, diplomat, philosopher, theologian, mathematician Nicholas of Cusa, otherwise known as Cusanus from the Latin version of his birthplace in Germany. The letter was published in 1453 as The Vision of God. De Visioni Dei, very remarkable text. Already in the title uh, you see how Cusanus liked uh, games. Eh? Vision of God is our vision of God and the vision of God, so to say. It's a book about the gaze. You have to put the painting on the wall and uh, he says you will see the gaze of the portrait will follow you everywhere where you go and you will think you are in the center of attention. And the more you try it, you go to the left, to the right, to the east, to the west, the gaze will follow you. It was uh, referring to a technique of painting in those days. As you can see in Mona Lisa, for example, later on. But what happens when you meet another person on this circle around the portrait? He will have the same experience, but I'm in the center. Then he tries to deal with the fact that how it is possible that different people are able to be in the center, so to say, and how to deal with the fact that everyone has its own perspective. Your face is turned toward every face that looks upon you. Your gaze, O Lord, is your face. So that the gaze constitutes every single person in front of it. Exactly. And constitutes the person who has his own way of seeing. And he even quotes the Greek philosopher Xenophanes, who criticized traditional religion, but in Cusanus it's seen in a positive way that God is for a young man, is a young man. For an old man, God is an old man. For a lion is God a lion, for a cow, God is a cow. Of course, Cusanus knows that God is not a cow, but he knows very well that in the way we are looking, the way we are perceiving, we are living in a concrete way, that's the place where God has to appear, where God can become concretely real, so to say. Inigo Bocken is the Belgian-born academic director of the Titus Bransma Institute at the University of Radboud in the Netherlands. He's been intrigued by the writings of Nicholas since his student days. Uh, during my studies in, in philosophy, I always was uh, interested uh, in the philosophy of religion, in the question, what is religion uh, today? What does it mean for human being? And... At that time, I discovered uh, the work of Nicholas of Cusa, who was not so well famous. He was a little bit uh, forgotten. And I got interested in him because he was able to be a Christian. He was able to rethink yeah, the content of, of faith. And at the same time, he tried to find out how to fit with, with other religious traditions. And it was a struggle for him. And I liked that he experimented with, with new forms of, of thinking, of believing. He was uh, kind of um, ideal for me. <laughs> a 
very important thing for him was the question uh, how is faith and the truth of faith working in the personal life of of normal people everywhere now just another question before we go to the content of his ideas his name is not one that leaps to mind even among christians especially perhaps christians who didn't grow up within europe why is that the case i think uh, the main reason is that in 15th century there was this time window so to say in church and it was a time of experiments time of free thinking even um, the pope of that time who was a friend of nicholas of cusa pius ii was a very humanistic person and later on modernity shows other ways other directions more in authoritarian style i think and he wasn't working at the university like meister eckhart did for example and he wrote his books for friends for little circles i think that's the reason why he was forgotten during modernity and was rediscovered only in 20th century in fact Inigo Bakken edited a 2004 book on the theme of conflict and reconciliation, Perspectives on Nicholas of Cusa. Quite a number of books are appearing in 2014 to mark the 550th anniversary of Nicholas of Cusa's death. You can already begin to see why. If God has to be real in each individual's concrete reality, then maybe Nicholas of Cusa, this somewhat forgotten figure, can prompt some useful thinking for our 21st century world. Note next that in those who have sight, sight varies as a result of the variety of its contractedness. For our sight is conditioned by the affections of the eye and of the mind. But sight that is free from all contractedness encompasses at one and the same time each and every mode of seeing. Think of the monks in front of the picture. There's a sense in which the eye in the picture, looking out at all of them as they milled about according to Nicholas's instructions, that eye or that gaze is creating or containing some form of interconnection between them. That's the mystical intuition that we are also not just different from God, but we are, if you like, one of God's own perspectives. You know, whatever way of thinking I have, I am, if you like, actualizing the divine's way of thinking or way of seeing the world. Dermot Moran is professor of philosophy at University College Dublin. So this means that all the different human beings are not just all different from one another, but somehow all participating as, if you like, perspectives within the divine overall view, where all the, as he would say, all the perspectives coincide. Cusanus uses images that are found right across this Neoplatonic tradition. And individuality is not ruled out of that. It stands there in the individual character being seen. 
You see, that's the interesting thing. Most people think of the medieval world as not emphasizing individuality in the way in which it comes to be expressed largely in the Renaissance. When you say that, you know, that famous phrase, the Renaissance man, if you like. In philosophy, people often credit this to Descartes, to the idea that you have to begin with the cogito ergo sum, with, with I think, therefore I am, which makes you very much at the center of the universe. You, an individual, are the thinker sitting there trying to figure out if anything else exists. What you have in Cusanus is a kind of strange transition from a kind of medieval world where we're not really individuals and the modern world of the hyper-individual by having this idea that we are unique and individual in our perspectives and on the other hand we can recognize once you recognize that your perspective is a perspective you in a sense transcend that perspective this is the paradox that you're suddenly kind of outside yourself and this is what Cusanus loves this idea of not being identical with yourself if you like it's quite different from Descartes in that point of view it's a concept of the human individual, I think, that's resurfacing now in very recent philosophy, which makes Cusanus very, very contemporary. Nicholas of Cusa is indeed a figure of the scholarly moment, not just because of his anniversary. In a way, it's because, as in Dermot Moran's words, he is a transition figure, a little difficult to place, a touch modern, not wholly medieval. But there's a sense that present-day concerns put his ideas under a spotlight. You've written about him in the Cambridge Companion to Renaissance History, but is he not of the late medieval period and why does it matter where you slot him? Well, it does matter because I suppose we think of a sharp distinction between the medieval and the modern world, and especially we associate the modern world with science, people like Galileo, and we think of the medieval world as somewhat self-enclosed and, if you like, dark. I mean, there's even the Dark Ages, as we call them. And uh, we tend to think of the medieval world as being rather small, and then the new world, the discovery of America, the discovery of the, you know, boundless universe in science, we think of that as part of modernity, and we think we belong within modernity. But when you come across a figure like Nicholas of Cusa, he really is a sort of modern thinker before his time. And you get a sense of the roots of where we come from when you see his different interests and you see how he bridges very neatly this transition between the medieval and the modern world. In part because he intellects that boundlessness, doesn't he? He absolutely does. I mean, the one word you could associate with Nicholas of Cusa is the notion of the infinite. He really struggles to try and articulate that notion. The word, Well, certainly the medieval map, if you think of a medieval map, it began either in Rome or in Jerusalem, and it really was just Europe, and around that nobody knew anything. And Nicholas of Cusa thinks of the universe in a very different way. He thinks of it as an absolutely endless, boundless, non-circumscribed area. And, of course, he's thinking of this on the model of the divine. His primary interest is theology, and what he's trying to express is the infinite nature of the divine. And he realizes that we can't do that directly because we're finite and limited beings. So he has to try and find ways to express this infinity, and that's what most of his works are about. 
And it's an infinity that's not static either, is it? It's mobile in some strange way. This is the paradoxical character of infinity that Nicholas of Cusa wants to emphasize. Say, Aristotle in the ancient world, they couldn't really comprehend the notion of the infinite because for them it was simply the non-finite. What, what we understand is the limited, something that has boundaries, something that has form, something that's fixed. And we can't think about something that is formless and beyond our boundaries. Nicholas of Cusa realizes, no, there is a way of thinking about this infinite. It's very paradoxical, but it has to capture this dynamism of the infinite. He gives this famous example of the square and the circle, that if you think of a square and a circle as two fixed shapes, they're clearly different from one another. But if you expand them to make them bigger and bigger until you're thinking of an infinite circle and an infinite square, well, they're going to coincide. This is his remarkable insight that in the infinite, in the ultimate, all things coincide. You may have noticed that the medieval is all about us. In popular culture, in film, in fiction, in art practice, in contemporary political life, think of our return to forms of aristocratic titles. In all these fields, the medieval is a time and a place to go to for fun, perhaps for nostalgia or a kind of respite, certainly as a resource. It works like that in the religious sphere too, for Jews, Christians and Muslims. For many Christian theologians, it's a resource for not only studying the tradition, but for thinking about modernity. In the context of theology, this is where Nicholas of Cusa comes in. In contemporary theology, we often use modern to mean roughly from the period of the Enlightenment onwards, so from the 17th or 18th century until now or until the 19th century. I don't know where the modern ends for theology, but it's often seen as a period of great challenge to Christian theology because it involves questioning tradition, rejecting authority, involves confidence in a human progress that seems out of step with kind of Christian vision of things. And the elevation of reason in a particular way in science, doesn't it? Yes, and the elevation of, of quite a narrow vision of a technical rationalistic kind of reason, which science exemplifies and trying to think of all forms of reason should be like science. And so there's a kind of narrowing to the vision of what reason is and what humanity is, and a sort of deracination that theologians often associate with the modern period, a deracination de of theology. Karen Kilby is the Bede Professor of Catholic Theology at the University of Durham in England, and we spoke via Skype. Are all theologians unhappy with the modern so that they evade it, as it were, or their, their strategies as theologians are somehow to step around and about the modern in order to critique it? It's quite a complicated thing. I think all the most, all the loudest voices in contemporary theology right now tend to use the modern with quite negative connotations. The theologians who are more positive about the modern tend to be called liberal theologians, theologians who think it's important to speak to the actual context that you're in and to accommodate to the particular demands of modernity. And liberalism is sort of on a back foot at the moment. It tends to be a word of dismissal. There are still liberals, but they're not the loudest 
most hearable voices in um, contemporary academic theology, I think. But the other thing that has to be said about that relationship of theologians, of these loud voices that are quite anti-modern, is that very often they are themselves presuming a lot of the characteristic virtues of modernity. So while they don't talk about it, they of course presume that criticizing things is acceptable, that tolerating difference is acceptable. There's a lot that they've actually imbibed of the virtues of modernity, but they focus on what's wrong with modernity. That tends to be the dominant mood of contemporary theology. Presuming and taking on a lot of the best aspects of modernity is a bit unfair. So I think the kind of the anti-liberalism, anti-modern instincts of the loudest voices in contemporary theology are, are somewhat out of kilter at the moment. Professor Karen Kilbeam. Voices that aren't so loud are interested in Nicholas of Cusa. I know a little of Nicholas of Cusa. I've certainly really enjoyed the Nicholas of Cusa that I've read myself. And one does hear increasing numbers of voices talking with enthusiasm about him. It may be that he's a sort of figure who stands on the cusp between the sort of medieval vision represented at its high point by Aquinas and the modern. And I've certainly heard people argue that Cusa offers us an alternative way to be modern, that's genuinely modern, but that also saves the best of of the medieval. Two things I find attractive in Cusa, and I think may explain some strands of the interest, are he kind of continues a, an apophatic strand in the medieval tradition, but in a distinctive and quite vivid way. And he, he sort of links it to mathematics in a way that appeals to me and, and may have potential for thinking. Because if you say that what's um, one of the things that's distinctive about modern views of reason are this sort of scientific, rationalistic uh, view then if you have someone who's thinking in often quite mathematical language, but thinking in a way that's not narrow and rationalistic, but the reverse, that's quite an interesting figure to look at. As it happens, Karen Kilby has a mathematics background herself. That word apophatic refers to the mystical tradition of approaching God, the kind of prayer to which Kuzanis's vision of God was meant to lead the monks, a state beyond the words of his letter beyond the symbol of the image and the physical movement of the experiment. Uh, God is there as the, the hidden God, so to say, but that's a very interesting point. He is hidden because he's so manifest. He's, in fact, too manifest to find him. That's a very paradoxical insight. I think that's the reason why People say he's a mystical author. He has a great sensitivity for paradoxes in our life. We are never able to grasp the divine, but we can do something with the fact that we don't know. Late in 1438, on a slow boat journey from Constantinople to Venice, Nicholas of Cusa conceived of the value of ignorance as a means towards knowledge. The more one learns of one's unknowing, the more learned one is. This is an insight drawn from contemplating the divine, but it worked also towards setting up modern scientific method. He had gone over to Constantinople to try and set up a 
a council between the Greek Orthodox Church and the uh, Roman Church. And on his way back, he had a vision where he said he learned to comprehend incomprehensible things. <laughs> so, uh, and, and as a, on the basis of that, he wrote his uh, his first major work, what was, which was called On Learned Ignorance. And the point of that work is that he's trying to capture the idea that we must recognize our own limitations, our own ignorance, but that we can, if you like, use that not knowing in a very creative way. And that's his whole way of doing theology as well. And at a theological level, it performs an equally interesting contemporary task. There's a famous insight of Dr. Ignorancia, the learned ignorance. We don't know who God is, but this not knowing has to lead our life. It's in fact a, a critical insight that we have to avoid to claim to know what God is. We see today that a lot of people claim to know how God is or what is in fact the same. They, they claim to know that there is no God or something. We like certainty so much in our days. Cousanus is saying now when we discussing what is really important in life, then we have to learn to live with this absence of certainty. And this absence of certainty is the source of our creativity. It's a, a room for freedom. This is RN's Encounter. I'm Margaret Coffey. And the 15th century figure Nicholas of Cusa is our figure of the moment. Why should someone who died 550 years ago this year, and who was hardly a household name, be of interest to theologians and philosophers in the 21st century? In fact, Cusanus is interesting for an amazing range of reasons. For example, political theorists credit him in his writings about the relationship between Pope and Church Council with articulating the notion of consent as the basis for a ruler's authority. But a chief part of the attraction of Nicholas of Cusa has to do with the reality of modernity and the questions it presents. You know, for the many theologians for whom the word modern is a kind of shorthand for a problem, you could divide them up amongst three strategies. One strategy is to align oneself with the postmodern, with various figures in postmodern philosophy, with a postmodern critique of the modern, and say, this is the point out of which we should do theology. Um, a second strategy is to align oneself with the pre-modern, to go back to the patristic period or to the Middle Ages and to say, there's something that they had which modernity has made us lose sight of and that we need to retrieve from the pre-modern period. We need to get back into the mindset of Basil of Caesarea or back into the mindset of Thomas Aquinas and learn the wisdom that's been blocked off by the sort of narrowness of modern thought. Learn this wisdom again from the pre-modern figure. And then the third and most complex strategy is to unite both uh, drawing on postmodern thought, postmodern philosophy, postmodern theory, and pre-modern thinkers, and to bring the two together. And there's, there's a few different groups who've done that in contemporary theology. 
This latter group includes scholars of quite different and varied orientations, and the word Karen Kilby uses sensibilities. You'll find examples of all three strategies online at RN Encounter, embedded in the transcript. Go to the RN homepage and locate Encounter in the program index. And where does Karen Kilby sit? It's a little bit hard to place myself uh, in a category, but I, I, um, I do think there's a richness in going back to the pre-modern, and I do think you certainly can't cut yourself off from contemporary debate. Those sometimes, I think... I'm not always drawn towards the way contemporary theologians engage with the postmodern, um, but I'm probably closest to that third school. As a philosopher who works in phenomenology, Dermot Moran also takes a unifying approach, as he has from his early days as a graduate student. I wrote on an Irish uh, medieval philosopher called John Scotus Eugena, who had a large influence on Cusanus. He was uh, a forerunner of, of this same negative mystical tradition. And I continued to write on John Scotus Eugena and on Nicholas of Cusa and of uh, Meister Eckhart. These three, Eugena, Eckhart and Cusanus, are three of the great Christian mystics of the medieval period but who are often now returned to because they seem to offer a thinking about the divine that allows for dialogue with other religions. For example, Japanese scholars are very interested in Meister Eckhart, whom they think is very close to the sort of Zen way of thinking about the divine. They don't know about Kuzanus or Eugenus so much. And so I have been quite a lot in discussion with uh, Japanese and Chinese scholars, Buddhist scholars, about the way in which this thinking about non-being and thinking about the infinite and thinking about the human in this Western tradition parallel many of the things you find, especially in Asian Buddhism. So that's something I've been very much caught up in in recent years. He's particularly caught up as the current president of the International Federation of Philosophical Societies, planning right now for their next World Congress in 2018 in Beijing. Outside the English-speaking world, phenomenology is widely respected because of its openness to the kind of ways of thinking that you find, for example, in, in Chinese philosophy, in Indian philosophy, in Taoism, in Buddhism, in the various ways of thinking in other cultures, largely because it isn't so scientific there are aspects of contemporary professional philosophy that are, you know, enamored of Western science. And although they are very precise and interesting and there's lots to be said for them, they don't somehow, or they're not open to or able to speak to different cultural approaches. And that's where phenomenology, I think, is a welcome way of mediating between different cultural experiences. And that's why it is appreciated. Nicholas of Cusa thought in a way that fits well in this enterprise. Even before Galileo, he's thinking of the world in terms of number. Galileo famously said, the book of nature is written in numbers. In other words, if you want to understand the universe, you've got to get down to the numbers, to E is equal to MC squared or whatever it is. Cusanus recognizes this. He has this already that everything in this universe is, in some respects, expressible in terms of 
ratio, reason or number or proportion. But then he points out that, of course, there's another side of this which we don't know, what he calls otherness. And this makes him very modern, because modernity, or at least postmodernity, the, the world we live in contemporaneously, is very, very fascinated by the idea of otherness and difference, and somehow learning to accommodate otherness. And of course, this is exactly what Nicholas of Cusa is saying. You've got all this mathematically proportionate world, but all of those relations or proportions are finite. He says, in the infinite, there is no proportion. So you kind of explode the whole notion of this finite balanced universe once you start to think of the infinite. And Kuzanis's very language of talking about difference and otherness and the manners in which we can harmonize differences, we can have coincidence of opposites, as he calls it, and coincidence of contradictories and so on. That's the very language that we are now again returning to in trying to have a world which accommodates difference and doesn't at the same time descend into kind of atomic individualism. Damn it, Moran. In this anniversary year of Nicholas of Cusa's death, many of the scheduled events and publications focus on themes to do with pluralism, religious diversity, and in particular with relations between Christianity and Islam. For Inigo Bakken, Kuzanis offers a fundamental contribution to these discussions. I think his main intuition is that truth starts with every individual anew. As you know, perhaps he was a diplomat. He traveled throughout Europe, even to Constantinople. All the time he was discussing with people on truth and discovered that Every human being is, so to say, the starting point of this searching for truth in his or her way. I think that's a very fundamental intuition for him. He translated that in a more abstract way. For example, he says in one of his philosophical works that in an infinite universe, every point is the center, or the center is everywhere. It's difficult to understand for reason, of course, but when you think on infinity, then you have to affirm this, this intuition. And I think this has to do with his experience with working with people, that you don't have to search truth in an abstract way, but in the way people are related to truth, in the way people are searching for truth. Every human being is searching for truth, for the divine, and that has to be the starting point for every search for truth. That takes us directly to a kind of acceptance of difference, an acknowledgement of difference, not as a way towards division, but as a way towards connection, doesn't it? Indeed, that's exactly what his intuition is. Diversity and difference are not um, dangerous or not tragic or something. They only affirm that the truth you are related with is so great that you can see it in an infinite way, so to say. So that means you can live with different opinions without being endangered yourself. It's a kind of fundamental trust in the greatness of the divine. 
And that's something uh, which modernity forgot, so to say. In modernity, you see the tendency to control this greatness, this plurality. For Cusanos, the fact that there are so many opinions and images is in fact the affirmation of your own position. It's an insight which fits with our intuition today, in my opinion. But today we consider plurality a problem and perhaps in liberal societies, in liberal democratic societies, we're so wary of it that we might attempt very strongly to exile it from the public square. But that's quite different from the implications of Kuzanis' thinking, isn't it? It's in fact totally different. It fits with the liberal idea that plurality is something good. But in, in the view of Kuzanus, it's only good because it's the affirmation of something substantial, of the divine, of truth, or how do you call it? You can give it different names, but the substantial relation towards truth in liberalism, that's something which you have to leave at home or to leave in your own heart. Nicholas of Cusa is stressing that the divine is everywhere. It's a quotation of him that truth is calling in every street, so to say. So truth is public in some way. That's what he's saying, in fact. Of course, he didn't know liberalism, but I think liberalism is a different answer for the same problem which is coming up at the end of Middle Ages, how to deal with the plurality of opinions and images. Inigo Bakken. Rita George Turkovich is also among the scholars writing about Nicholas of Cusa. She has a track record of working in an interreligious context and she teaches at a Catholic university in Chicago, Benedictine, where 6% of the students are Hindu and 30% are Muslim. So every class I teach is de facto interreligious dialogue, but I also am in charge of a bi-weekly Catholic-Muslim all-female dialogue group and that um, is a great joy to be with women, uh, all women's dialogue, and eat together and um, basically build a, up friendships together. So every day. Although, although I have to say that diversity, just the mere fact of it, is no guarantee that students will engage with each other. It actually has to be quite intentional because students could stay in their little silos, you know, their little cultural groups, and I have seen that too. Professor George Turkovich is also a scholar of medieval Muslim-Christian relations. She has co-edited a book on Nicholas of Cusa and Islam to be published in June by Brill. In it, she takes up with Nicholas's two books relating to Islam. The first is De Pace Fidei, on the peace of faith, written in response to the fall of Constantinople in 1453. That was a traumatic event for Christians. Nicholas's immediate response was to segue to heaven, where difference could be resolved in abstraction and irenic conversation. He basically wants to end interreligious strife. One of the most famous phrases from De Pace Fide is one religion in a variety of rites, which suggests a sort of balancing of diversity within unity. Now, this seems like a modern idea, but in actuality, scholars have traced this idea 
to an Islamic text that Kusa was reading, and we know this from Nicholas's marginal notes of the text itself. De Pace Fidei is an account of a heavenly vision. Figures drawn from 17 different religious backgrounds as diverse as Hindu, Chaldean, Zoroastrian, Muslim, gather for a council and work out how to achieve peace. Ten years later, Kuzanis produced an enormous study of the Quran, based on a 12th century translation into Latin by an English monk, the very first translation of the Quran into a European language. The second book, Cribratio al-Qurani, which is a sifting of the Quran, is actually quite interesting because, while it's critical in some places, certainly, he also employs this method called pia interpretatio, where he has a very sympathetic reading of the Quran, and that is somewhat of a development. In De Pace Fidei, Nicholas's sense is that there has to be some way of living peaceably. The opening paragraph registers the horror and the violence of the encounter in Constantinople. Yes, and again, I think this is what makes him important and interesting because his response to tragedy is not, let's go and start a new crusade, which is the response of many, but it is an attempt to engage. Now, obviously, the quote-unquote dialogue in De Pace Fide between 17 faiths isn't that much of a real dialogue. It's quite contrived, but I think it demonstrates his hope, his confidence that we could actually talk it out. Is it a confidence that we should actually talk it out or a conviction that we need to? There's a difference between what we could possibly do and what is a necessity. Right. Well, it's interesting because Nicholas couches it in a vision and it, in fact the dialogue is taking place in heaven. So one has to wonder if you know, it's a hope that he doesn't think will be realized or not. Of course, the dialogue that the 17 religions are engaged in is how to come up with this one religion and the diversity of rights. And of course, he has to smooth out a lot of particularities to get there and in, in some improbable ways. So, for example, he talks about how, well, you know, Jews and Muslims have washings similar to Christian washings baptism. So therefore, it'll be, quote, very easy for them to agree to baptism. Obviously, that's um, highly problematic. That's where your critique comes in, isn't it? That Nicholas is writing, he may have been reading a text written by a Muslim, but on the level of lived experience, he actually knows extremely little about Muslims, about Islam. Absolutely. Not only does he not have first-hand experience of Muslims, but he doesn't even know Arabic. So how can you really sift through the Quran, critique the Quran, if you are actually relying upon a um, 200-plus-year-old translation into Latin? That's high, obviously highly problematic. And that was Rita George Turkovich. In her writing, she compares Nicholas to the 13th century Dominican friar Ricardo da Montecroce, who spent 15 years travelling about the Middle East. In contrast to Nicholas, he did have lived experience of Muslims and Islam, and he had Arabic. Ricardo's experience puts him into a tizzy, if, it will, if you will. He really doesn't know what to do with the tension between what he th believes to be true that the Quran is false 
and the religion of Islam is false. He doesn't know what to do with that. And what he sees of Muslim prayer and hospitality. And his writings are interesting and unique because they offer us a glimpse into this internal questioning. How does he resolve the tension? Well, he goes back to Florence and writes a refutation of the Quran. Earlier he says, well, is the Quran the word of God? Let me think about this. Let me study it. But his conclusions, he goes right back to all the Christian platitudes about Islam being wrong. I wonder if, though, <laughs> that Nicholas's solution is really a solution, whether we need to go back to Ricoldo and the tension and stay there, because in both cases they wanted to resolve the tension. And I, and I think that there's a tendency today, I see actually even among my students engaged in dialogue, they want to agree, they want to look at commonalities, because they think that to agree and to look at commonalities is the only way to have peace. And I always encourage them to get comfortable with difference and maybe stay there. So I don't know if either one of them have a solution that's satisfactory. Rita George Tokovic from Benedictine University in Chicago. Inigo Bakken has a slightly different take on Nicholas's strategy in De Pace Fide, and it's explored in the book he edited on conflict and reconciliation in Kuzanis's writings. I heard once that De Pace Fide is a book for Sunday, so to say. This harmony of religions, it takes place in the heavenly Jerusalem and not on the earth. And you see already in the book that Kuzanus is very well aware of it. You see a very interesting point here. We see Kuzanus as a very practical person, his personal life. He was one of the most important politicians of his time. And he, in his own biography, was very well aware of the fact that it's very difficult to find concordancia, to find concordance at the end of the book. All the participants of the dialogue go back to their country and do as they always did. And I think that's the importance of the book, The Pace Fidei, that Cousanus is very well aware that you never can leave this practical point of view, that you never can take a position, an abstract and neutral position. I think that's what later on the liberal solution will be, that you want to take a neutral position. Cousano says, no, I'm a Christian, I'm writing this book, I'm writing the dialogue with other religions, and it is possible from my practical point of view to remain Christian, but to see the richness of other perspectives. And it's an illusion to take a position outside all of these perspectives. At the end of the book, Cousanus remains a Christian. Uh, you can speculate the Hindu and the Muslim go to their home countries and remain Hindu or Muslim. But they now know that what they live with is this infinite richness of truth and they will be able to see this in other people that's the hope of Cusanus. perhaps it's a naive hope but it's a nice image i think which have a call for us i think the upshot of all of this you present in the book as a form of 
well, you describe it as a Cousin theory model, which is all about conflict and reconciliation. How does this work? How can it be relevant to us today? I, I mean, I'm particularly interested that you argue strongly that it's not a high-minded abstraction, but praxis is central to it. Yes, and I think that's what we can learn for today, in my opinion. The reconciliation of, of religions is too often seen in an abstract way, as if there is a neutral territory. There is no neutral position for this search for truth. It's an intuition of this religious reform movement in the time of Cusanus in the Netherlands and also in Germany, the Devotio Moderna, Modern Devotion, the most famous book of this movement is, without any doubt, uh, The Imitation of Christ, of Thomas Akempis. I think there is the same intuition there that in every individual, the quest for truth starts again. The imitation of Christ is not only imitating, but refers also to becoming image yourself. I think when you understand that other people, every human being, in fact, is trying to become an image, then it's perhaps easier to become tolerant. Inigo Bokken, and I spoke to him via Skype. By the way, that 14th century religious reform movement, the Devotio Moderna, at his school Nicholas is said to have been educated, it represents the very first use of the word modern. Now, Nicholas of Cusa is a fascinating figure and a man of contradictions. There are sides to him that I, I find a bit austere. I mean, there are flaws in his character. I mean, he's not... Well, they didn't make him a saint, I'll point that out. <laughs> but what he's left behind in his hometown on the banks of the Moselle River conveys a strong sense of the person. There's his library, still retaining much of his remarkable manuscript collection. And adjacent to the library is a residence for elderly people, set up by Nicholas and his siblings as a home for the aged and poor. It has served that purpose, even through strife and war, for the five centuries plus since his death. I think that's the reason why I personally like Cusano so much. He has always this practical ideal. All our human knowledge has to serve the human person. His personal search for God has to serve other people. You see it in his library, which is an amazing library. It's one of the best late medieval libraries which you can visit today. But at the same time, it is embedded in the social institution of the housing course. That's the house for elderly... The house for elderly people, yes. It was important for him that also at the end of life you are still a human being. That was his intuition. When you are old, you are preparing for the next step, so to say. And we should not forget that we are living in, in community there too. It was very important, this social involvement of him.
This has been Encounter, Nicholas of Cusa and the Instruction of Ignorance. You'll find a transcript of this program along with downloadable audio at Encounter's website, plus a whole lot of other information about the speakers you've heard, books they've written, links to English translations of texts by Cusanus, and to the website of his library. The library is in his hometown of Berncastel Cuez on the banks of the Moselle, winemaking territory. The library website will take you to a directory of organisations all over the world that are planning to commemorate Nicholas of Cusa in 2014. Sound engineer for this encounter was Matthew Crawford. I'm Margaret Coffey. Next on Encounter, the first in a two-part series on the two-part papal canonization that's about to get underway in Rome. First up, Pope John XXIII, the man who 50 years ago began driving the locomotive of Catholic Church reform by inaugurating the Second Vatican Council. Well, he's about to be made a saint for his troubles, but who was he and how is his influence still being felt in the church and in secular society today? That's an encounter with Pope John the Twenty-Third, Saturday after the news at five. So join us then, and stay with us this evening on RN for Away coming up shortly. I'm David Rutledge, and I'll be back a little later in the evening with the best of World Radio. On RN, it's just coming up to news time. 